If you are able, brothers and sisters, would you stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word? And before we read God's word, we will ask for a prayer of blessing. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, now as your word is read and proclaimed, would you work by the Holy Spirit to bring everyone, everyone in this room to a point of decision, a point of reckoning where they must resolve the question, what do I make of Jesus Christ? Would you bring us to the place of clarity and of submission to Jesus as Lord and Savior, by your holy word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of Christ speaks to us like this, starting in verse 22. There was a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that that man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven uh, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we live in a day and age of do-overs, or kind of comebacks. We, it seems like as though anybody can do almost anything and reasonably expect that the consequences will not be permanent. You get do-overs. After do-overs, after do-overs, we see this in our sports, we see this in politics, we see this in marriage, we see this in education, and friends, we even see this in religion, where we'd rather not talk about the consequences that cannot 
change. Most people even believe in heaven. Few people believe in hell. The demise of, in our day and age, the demise of absolute truth has birthed the end of absolute consequences. So our subject today is, I'll admit, it's a sober one. Uh, and it's a very countercultural one, even in evangelical Christianity today. So, but I want you to hear this, and I don't want you to get me wrong. If I am going to err anywhere in this, I want it to be on the side of forgiveness. I want to err on the side of reconciliation. I want to err on the side of second chances. I want to err on the side of hope. Every one of us wants to. But we have to acknowledge that parallel to these passages loaded that are loaded with mercy and loaded with second chances that are loaded with hope parallel to them are these scary texts that are meant to wake us up they're meant to kind of even shock us out of our places of comfortableness and Matthew chapter 12, 22 to 32 is, is one of those texts that are meant to kind of shake us and wake us up. So let me ask you a question. And I really want you to carefully consider it. So I'm going to give it a little uh, kind of a pregnant pause afterwards. What would you do? What would you do if you knew that there was one sin? One sin from which you could never, ever Receive forgiveness. How would you think about that issue if you knew that once you crossed that line, you crossed that line, there is no going back? How would you treat that subject? Today, we're, we're going to be talking about the one unforgivable sin. Now, in this topic, I've had people ask me, so what is this unforgivable sin? Many people have heard it when it comes to committing suicide. Is committing suicide the, the one unforgivable sin? Many other things have been kind of filled in the blank. Is this the, is this the one unforgivable sin? So I'm going to address what is that? We're going to talk about that. That one unforgivable sin. So I'm going to attempt it by asking two questions. First, what is the unforgivable sin? And second, how do we live in light of this unforgivable sin? So in order to answer these two questions, we, under, we need to kind of understand the context in which Jesus' statement has been made because it informs the conclusions that we're going to draw. And here's the reality and the beauty of the way that we are doing preaching. We are on week 30 in the book of Matthew. So hopefully we have been building a case and a story and getting this portrait of who Jesus is. We're not kind of pulling it out of context and saying, oh, let's talk about this today. We're, we've been building this picture of who is this Jesus. And so we're, we're looking in the middle of this section right now with chapters 11 and 12. It, 
and I would kind of call this section a, a portrait of who Jesus is. And in this portrait of who Jesus is, we are seeing increasing hostility against Jesus and his teaching. We saw in, in chapters 11 that Jesus rebuked the cities that didn't receive his teaching. That he, he even asserted his greatness over the temple. And, and he claimed, and rightly so, he claimed that we heard last week, that he is the, the Lord of the Sabbath. And now the, the Pharisees have decidedly, they have committed to destroying Jesus. Because of all these things that, that he has said, because of how Jesus has portrayed himself to these people, now the Pharisees are out to get him. And in the midst of that context, a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. He's blind. He's mute. We don't know how long he's been that way. In verse 23, we see that Jesus, in that moment, this man comes to him, blind, mute, demon-possessed, who knows, frothing at the mouth, and Jesus heals him. And what do the crowds do? They were amazed. They, it says the people were all amazed. It was like, what just happened here? And then a question came to their mind. Can this be the son of David? That, that is code for, can this be the promised Messiah? Is this the one that all the prophets have been talking about? Is this the Messiah? Could this be the one? So what comes next is very telling, and it sets up Jesus' teaching. In verse 24 it says, But when the Pharisees heard this, what did they hear? About the people saying, Is this the Messiah? The Pharisees said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The word, the word or the name Beelzebub means Lord of the house or Lord of the heights. And it was used to describe the, the supernatural powers or, or the devil himself. And the Pharisees could not, in that moment, they could not deny that the man was healed. They saw it with their very own eyes. And they couldn't make the crowd stop being amazed. So, what did they do? They attributed Jesus' power to heal the demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. They attributed that power to the healing power of Satan. They, they observed a good deed. And what did they do? They ascribed that good deed to the evil one himself. They willfully, willfully in that moment, rejected what should have been apparent because to believe that he did it would mean that Jesus actually had supernatural power from God. They had to reject the, the, to them the repugnant idea of Christ's power and they had to justify it in spite of this obvious miracle that was right before them. So what did they do? They created a despicable solution that must have made heaven itself 
gasp. You imagine the angels watching and going, did they just say that? To think that human beings would suggest that the Son of God was empowered by the very prince of darkness is a dangerous, dangerous statement. And Jesus, what does He do? He proceeds to dismantle all of their, their arguments, all their charges in verses 25 to 30. He makes three statements and then He kind of gives a summary before talking about this unforgivable sin. So let's look at those three statements. You see in verses 25 and 26, look there. Jesus indicates that their statements are absolutely illogical. It just doesn't make sense that Satan would cast himself out. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. So in other words, Jesus is saying, listen, if this is true, if what you're saying is true, Satan would be working against himself. He would be defeating himself. So how would Satan's even stand? Guys, that makes no sense. And then he goes on in verse 27. Jesus shows them that their charge is absolutely inconsistent. Because even the disciples of the Pharisees, your sons, your disciples, cast out demons. And they're not surely suggesting that their, their followers are empowered by the devil as well. So you're, you guys are being applying your argument inconsistently. And maybe, maybe you're applying your argument inconsistently so that your agenda can move forward. I don't know. But then you see in verses 28 and 29, and this final statement really kind of drives at the heart of what's going on. The Pharisees cannot acknowledge that it is by the Spirit of God that Jesus does these miracles. Because if that was the case, that Jesus does it by the Spirit of God, that He's empowered by the Spirit of God to do these miracles, they would have to acknowledge that the kingdom of God had come through Him. In this moment, they are being absolutely defiant. So finally, in verse, verse 30, there's kind of this summary statement that leads into the text on the unforgivable sin. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is, what? Against me. And who does not gather with me ultimately is scattering. He says the same thing two different ways to make sure that his point is getting across in order to attack the, the spiritual passivity that is implicit in these Pharisees' uh, resistance. Jesus says, listen, if you are not a shepherd who is gathering in sheep to the kingdom of God, then ultimately you are a person who is scattering sheep. If you are not with me, you're against me. In other words, there is, he is saying there is no fence that you can be riding on in this moment. You either are for me or you're against me. There's no fence in the middle. And church, there's no fence for us. For or against. In fact, passivity is kind of a form of deflective suggestions and it's kind of in, in even it's even a, an active resistance 
So the context is absolutely critical for us to, to understand what Jesus is here. The Pharisees cannot deny that a miracle happened right before their eyes. Instead, they suggested illogically, inconsistently, and defiantly that Jesus is empowered not by the Spirit of God, but by the devil himself. And their charge reflected a serious resistance against Jesus. So Jesus takes it one step further and uses this situation to, as an opportunity to talk about the unforgivable sin. So here, here's the first thing. What is the unforgivable sin? What is it? So Jesus connected the unforgivable sin to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Whoever even speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Hmm. I want you to notice the danger, the clear and present danger of unbelief. You can see there's an awful lot at stake here. You, you, you look at those verses 28 through 30, and Jesus, first, what does he do? He gives a very solemn warning. He gives a solemn warning. But before he gets to a solemn warning, he, there, you, you've got to see it. There is this gem, this, this beautiful diamond going on right there in the middle. There's this beautiful promise. A promise before the warning. Did you see it? Therefore I tell you, every, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. We should pause right there. And we should even think about our lives, right? Every sin, every blasphemy that we, we commit if we are in Christ, will be forgiven. Friends, right there, it should land heavy and hard and joyfully on our hearts that every single sin that is committed will be forgiven. Everyone. It, friends, listen, it's, it's not just freedom that Jesus came to, to bring. And he brought freedom to that man, that demon-possessed man who was bound in the chains he, he was stuck in that life. Jesus brought freedom, but that was not the only thing that he brought. He brought forgiveness. In fact, the character and the very nature of freedom that he gives is freedom from sin's condemning power. That's what he brings. He, he can, listen, he can finally make your conscience free and clean at last. But you might say, listen, Paul, listen, you don't know what I have done. You don't know the wicked 
festering sinkhole of sin that is going on in my life? You you don't understand the the rebellion that is still in my heart? You don't know the things that I've said? You don't know how divisive I am? You don't know how, how, what I do in my private time. You don't know how I've lived. And that's true. And I thank God that I don't know all your sins. Because the burden and the weight that would be placed on me would be insurmountable and it would absolutely crush me. But here's the good news. Jesus does. He knows it. And he says, friend, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven to people. Every sin. So whatever life and rebellion you've been living this far, no matter what kind of lifestyle you've been living, friends, hear this. There is pardon. There is hope in, in Jesus Christ for you. There is, if you would just come to Him, if you would just bow your knee, if you would just stop living your way, if you would say, Jesus, You are Lord. You are my Savior. You are the only hope. If you would do that today, just do it now. Come and trust in Christ. I tell you, He will set you free. And He will make you clean. Friends, that is the beautiful gem, the diamond that is found in the midst of this story, this truth about the unforgivable sin, if you would come to Him and trust in Him, every sin will be forgiven. That's good news. But there's a warning. In that same context of this extraordinary promise comes a very strong, across-the-chin kind of warning. Verse 31, there is a sin that puts you beyond the possibility of pardon. One sin. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But, whenever you see a kind of a conjunction like that, that's a a moment where you take out your little pencil, your pen, your highlighter, and circle it. But, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So a couple things to understand about this warning. First, Jesus doesn't say that the Pharisees have committed this sin yet. There's part of me that wanted to read that into it, right? Just say, oh, they are so screwed. But he's saying, you are teetering on the brink of committing this sin. And he's, he's warning not just those Pharisees some 2,000 years ago. He is also warning us too, lest we ourselves find ourselves in that same kind of peril, that same kind of danger of committing this sin. So that's the first thing. The second thing, he says he doesn't mean uh, simply bad, saying bad things about the Holy Spirit but saying things that are defiantly against the Holy Spirit. Saying saying bad things about the Holy Spirit is blasphemous for sure, and it's a dreadful sin. But that's not what he means by 
the unforgivable sin right here. The reality is the beauty of how uh, the Bible is written is that we have four Gospels. And the Gospel of Mark also tells this story and it helps us understand kind of a little bit more clearly what is going on here. In in Mark chapter 5, verse 30, uh, it kind of gives us a clue as to the real meaning of what is going on underneath the surface. The Gospel of Mark says this, For they, the Pharisees, were were saying he has an evil spirit. And in the original Greek, the tense uh, of that word, we're saying, is extremely important. It was a sustained pattern that was going on and on and on and on. You see, What Jesus means when he warns the people about the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is they had a settled disposition of the heart where they were consistently ascribing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the person of Jesus, Jesus Christ. They were constantly saying, you see that? You hear that? That's Satan. You hear that? Oh my word. Did you see what just happened over? That was Satan. So they had a settled disposition in their heart saying, that is of Satan. Henry Alford, a commentator, wrote about the unforgiving sin and he said this. And I think I might have a slide. It is not a particular species of sin which is here condemned, but a definite act showing a state of sin. And that state, a willful, determined opposition to the present power of the Holy Spirit. And this is shown by its fruit, blasphemy. A state of sin. A state of a willful, determined opposition. Jesus' words here are designed to warn the Pharisees who were denouncing Him, lest that would be their fate. He says, I see what you're doing. I see your heart. You are moving to a place of a state of sin. Where that is just, you are cementing yourself. And friends, that is a warning for ourselves as well. If you have been mocking Jesus, explaining Him away, if you have been minimizing His message, if you have been keeping Him at arm's length, if you have even been avoiding His claims, avoiding His people, avoiding the truth, friends, Jesus is warning you. He's warning you too, lest your heart become hardened, and your destiny be sealed beyond all hope of recovery. It's a warning for all of us here. His words are meant to unsettle us, to make us uncomfortable. Listen, Jesus is not your your boyfriend. He's not this warm, fuzzy kind of buddy. He is the Savior. He is the Son of of man. He's the Lord. And 
His words are meant to unsettle us and, and drive us where? Not away from Him, but drive us to the only safe refuge, the only safe one, Jesus Himself. There is a safe harbor for you in Jesus Christ. So as you hear His warning, as all the alarm bells are going off in your head, Jesus is inviting you. Come to me. All you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, come to me and you will find rest. You will find safety. You will find freedom. You will find forgiveness. That's Jesus' call. Which leads us to the last question. How do you and I live in light of this passage? And quite honestly, earlier in the week, Daniel and I were talking about this and the complexity of this passage and what is, how it's been preached in evangelical circles. And what, is it definitive? Is it still possible today? And, and as I'm wrestling through all of this, I found myself kind of in a place uh, trembling at spots, un- uncomfortable with this message. So I I think there's three words for how do we live out the implications of this message. And being a, you know, pastors need to either have stuff spell stuff out when they give you three G's. First, we should find ourselves gasping. If you do not read this warning and gasp at the sober reality of what it means, you probably have not fully understood it. Jesus is issuing a warning here that is intended to create a spiritual gasp, realizing that it is no small thing that there is sin a sin that a person can commit from which there is never a return. That is a nightmare. But it's not a dream. It's true. There is a sin that we can commit that can be committed where there is no return. Further, it ought to make us gasp that Jesus said this to spiritual people. Did you pick that up? Spiritual people. Raise your hand if you're spiritual. Yeah, it's all of you. You're all spiritual people. You see, it's far more likely that those who are near spiritual things and and see spiritual things and are even part of spiritual things would commit this sin. It is a spiritually proud crowd most often, who most often rejected Jesus. The profile of this person is someone who, that commits this sin is a person that has a lot of religious lingo. Has a really good religious background. Has a, probably a really good family pedigree. I grew up in the church. Went to church twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday. Uh, I was part of cadets. I uh, 
uh, went to a Christian school, went to a Christian college. I, I maybe even went to a seminary. I, I'm in a Bible study every week. I got, I got some great lingo. But friends, that, that is part of the problem. That this person knows so much that he or she is the last person to know that they have actually grieved the Holy Spirit. So we need to caution ourselves and examine ourselves. So one, it should cause us to gasp. But two, there's this grapple is the, the second word. It causes me to even grapple. Did the Pharisees commit this sin? I don't know, but I'm convinced that they did not. Jesus never says. It's one of the mysteries of Scripture. It wasn't explicit. He didn't say, you have done this. But He warns them. And Matthew tells us, all of us, about this sin. So let, let me be absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. I do not believe that a genuine believer, someone who is in Christ, who has faith, can commit this sin. Hear that. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that can take you out of His grip. Nothing. Did you all hear that? But I also think that if you understand what is going on here, it has to produce in you kind of a level of heart searching and grappling, a kind of even a, maybe even a, a healthy sense of fear of what sin can do, the sin's potential. Because just because a, a true believer doesn't commit this sin doesn't mean that there, there isn't some level of hardening that goes on in our heart, right? We're, we're warned in Hebrews chapter uh, 3 about the dangers of the deceitfulness of sin creating a hardening of the heart. Oh, that is true for me. And it is absolutely true for you. We are deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. And that, over time, creates a hardening of our heart. You become convinced that, oh, it's alright, that's not doing anything to me. That's, uh, uh, Jesus will forgive me for that too. And after a while, we are deceived by that sin. And what happens ultimately is that sin creates a, a callous. And after a while, that callous turns into a rock-hard heart. We, we're deceived. And so we, we should even agree with the hymn writer. And he, listen to this song, this song. Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to what? Wander. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts. Friends, we are all prone to wander. We are all prone to leave the God. 
of every one of us. I don't care how long you've been on this journey. We're all prone to wander. So yet we have to take hope, comfort in the hope that God's sealing of our hearts is irrevocable. It never changes. Wayne Grudem said this, and listen carefully. Some of you probably need to hear this. We may be reasonably sure that those who fear they have committed it and worry about this and desire the prayers of others for them have not committed it. So if you're worried about, did I commit the the unforgivable sin? And you keep presenting, Paul, I don't know, did I do that? The answer is, your concern of grieving God's heart is evidence that you are still a child of God. But here's the final, the final G. Glory. Gasp, grapple, glory. In the midst of our uh, do-over and kind of our comeback culture, this teaching reminds us, every one of us, about the dire consequences of sin. It's a sober reminder that sin actually is a big deal. Without God's mercy, through His Son and the Spirit, all sins would be unforgivable. Without Christ's work, we would all be left in our sins. Forgiveness through the cross, friends, forgiveness through the cross is not the norm in the universe. Normal is permanent. Punishment. That is, seems to be the norm in our world, in our time. Therefore, this passage should cause you to tremble and cause you to think. And it should also, also cause you just to bask in the glory of redemption. Oh! To thank God that by His your eyes were opened to see the full reality of who Jesus Christ really is. That should cause you to worship. Look at Look at this. Look at this Jesus. I see Him. I see Him. Or it should cause you to marvel at how God conquered your sin-filled, rock-hard heart. You should just be marveling and, and basking in the glory of how God changes a heart of stone into a pumping heart of flesh that desires to follow after Him. It should cause you to rejoice that even when you were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Friends, you, you should be, thank you, Jesus. I, I love you. Here's my life. Take it. I will follow you. Help me be aware of that sin that I have become so accustomed to. And Lord, help me to mortify that sin. Help me to mortify those desires. Help me to mortify those thoughts so that I can reflect your glory. So I can enjoy you more fully. Friends, 
I pray that God will help us to gasp and to, to grapple and to, to glory in this hard teaching that shows all of us more clearly the beauty, the beauty of our Savior. My job every single Sunday is to present Jesus. To help you see Him for who He is. Your job every Sunday is to come and to say, Paul, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Him. I want to, be, I want to have moments where I am grappling and then glorying in the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And I pray that has been true this morning. And friends, in a moment, we are going to be coming to His table where He, he invites each of us, those who are in Christ, who are able to gasp and grapple in glory and redemption. He invites us to His table to remember and also to believe that as we eat and drink in faith, that Christ nourishes us, spiritually feeds and strengthens our soul as we believe this gospel. Amen? Let's pray.